Welcome to Kibbe on Liberty. This week, uh, Dave Rubin, who just happens to have a new book out that I feel like is not just a how-to to think for yourself. It's kind of like a, a more happy, positive version maybe of, of what Jordan Peterson wrote. Um, but it's also sort of a how-to to think about yourself at this particular moment in time where the World Health Organization and governors and, and bureaucrats, we don't even know who they are, are telling us and dictating every single thing we do. Welcome, Dave. How's it going? Kibby, it's good to be with you. I got to tell you, I'm in the midst of a lot of press, as you know, but I had this one circled because you are the guy, more than anyone else, that I know I can make all of my Star Wars metaphors, references, parables, the rest of it too, and you'll probably understand all of them. And that's all I ask out of an interviewer. So yeah. I, no, but for real, I'm looking forward to talking to you because you're right in the, the thick of this too. Like we want to live in a free country and, and oddly we are suddenly watching it slip away. Yeah, strange, stranger than fiction. And I, as I recall, last time you were on the show, we did spend most of the time talking about about Star Wars, and and I feel like there's some pretty powerful metaphors. And you've been tweeting at those at me. Give us. Oh, and by the way, we should talk about what day today is, right? Oh well, today is May the fourth, so may the fourth be with you, of course. <laughs> um, well, look, I mean, we won't have to knock too much time out of the, the Star Wars thing. But when I last was on your show, which I think now is like two years ago or something, uh, I've been saying for probably 10 years that the prequels will be looked back over time kindly. Now you have to remove some of the bad acting, Hayden Christensen, you gotta remove some of the, the stiff dialogue, especially in the love scenes. But the, the core story of an accumulation of power by creating a crisis that then keeps giving more power to the executive branch, Palpatine, as we watch him go from senator to chancellor to supreme leader and the rest of it, um, is a really, really powerful story. And then the idea of really what happens towards the end of Revenge of the Sith, when the good guys become the bad guys, the bad guys become the good guys, you shut down half the army once you have full power, uh, is, is a pretty powerful story. And in many ways, how does the Phantom Menace begin? Well, it begins with this, this trade federation blockade of Naboo. I'm here in California right now where I am under blockade. I cannot go to the beaches. Why am I paying all of these high taxes as the trade federation demands to live in Los Angeles if I can't even go to the beach? So obviously I'm being, you know, slightly silly here, but actually not that much. You know, in a way we get Many of our truths as humans are, are handed down to us through stories, right? So that's what good art is. That's what, what biblical stories are, if you're a believer in that, or what a good movie can do, or a good book, or the rest of it. So I think we actually are watching something. There's a reason that the prequels are so memeable, you know? Um, you know, uh, liberty dies with thunderous applause. I love democracy. I am the Senate. There are so many lines out of the prequels that relate to freedom and liberty and the rest of it. And yeah, you gotta get rid of some of the acting, that's about it. Well, you, you gotta sort through anything in, in life to get to the good stuff. But yeah, I'm, I'm afraid, like, I really feel that way right now. I'm, I'm trying to recognize my country as, as, uh, as our government has basically convinced all of us to cower in our homes in fear of ever going out again. And I. Um, I'll tell you one story, and then I want to get to the book because I think I think there's some lessons in your book that that are going to help us get through this and get some of our liberties back once we get through the pandemic. Um, but I, I'm a big deadhead, 
And uh, one of my friends pointed out that the Grateful Dead in 1968, during the height of the Hong Kong flu, which um, so far at least had killed a lot more people than anything we're looking like under under COVID, uh, the Dead played through. They played a series of sh shows huh. in Los, Los Angeles all through this, and, and nobody batted an eye because we knew that life goes on even when you, you're dealing with really bad things, unknown things, dangerous things. Life is a series of, of radically uncertain choices that you have to make about the future. And somehow today we're in this, we're afraid of everything. And if we're not afraid of everything, we're afraid to actually speak up and, and ask simple questions about what, what are we doing here? Well, there's so much there. So first off, I didn't know that about the dead. That's actually pretty awesome. And we need that spirit. Where Where is that spirit amongst our artists, our musicians, our actors, our comedians, the rest of it? Now, that's not to say that you ignore every warning and that we should flip the switch, you know, right this moment and everyone should be out there doing whatever they want. But, you know, when I have a progressive governor, Gavin Newsom, who, by the way, was the progressive mayor of San Francisco, and he, he turned it into a literal shithole. I mean, there is a map, there is an app that tells you, that maps out where the human feces is on the streets of San Francisco. That is what that man turned that city into. And then we know that, look, Peter Thiel, the, the libertarian of Silicon Valley, he literally left San Francisco to move to the free-thinking haven of Los Angeles because that's how bad it got over there. And if LA is some bastion of free-thinking. It actually is a little bit in a way now that Thiel is down here. That, that's a separate topic. Um, Look, if I can't go to the beaches, if I can't make any basic choice, look, I have friends like all of us. We all have friends. We've been behaving under quarantine and everything else. If you're young and healthy, I, I believe that right now it is against the government orders if I was to invite two of my friends who have also been in lockdown, who are in their 30s and 40s, over for dinner tonight in my private home. They could drive five minutes, come here. That is actually, as far as I know, that is, that is not legal right now. This is this is deeply dangerous. And for a guy like you, of course, that cares about the Constitution and the Bill of Rights, it's like, in effect, the, the Fourth Amendment, the right to assembly is suspended right now. We yeah. got a big we got a big problem on our hands. I'm not saying that in absolute times of crisis, you can you can do some temporary measures. That's always a slippery slope, of course, because then they can always extend it. And we're seeing some sort of versions of that. And by the way, that that's another sort of parable to the Star Wars thing, because he kept exacerbating the war to keep getting more power. Um, but in effect, we've, I think, gotten fat on our freedom. So the only people who suddenly seem to be waking up to this are the conservatives and libertarians and the liberals who have, to give you one more Star Wars thing, the liberals who have sort of been, uh, had uh, Order 66 executed on them and they've been slaughtered pretty much. I mean, there are very few liberals left in the true sense of liberalism, not leftism. Uh, they've become sort of useless. And now, you know, people that want power, Governor Whitmer in, in Michigan, she wants, she likes power. She likes the idea of saying to her constituents, you can't plant seeds, you can't do landscaping in, in your house. What right do you have to do that? I literally mailed seeds to fans in Michigan. So I think I'm, I think I might be a federal uh, criminal also, um, which I'll need your help during the trial. You could be yeah. a character witness or something. But, but, you know, these people that want power, when they see a moment to grab it, they grab it, and that's what we're seeing right now. Well, it it gets to, and I, I'm I, I do want to pivot to the book because it gets to the primary premise of your book that so many of us 
have been cowed into submission were afraid to openly state a question or a dissenting opinion. And it, it seems like right now we, we're, we're sort of sort of radically locked into this fear, not only of, of a virus, but a, but a fear that you and I can't question a government order, even though it seems to just throw away the entire Bill of Rights without even a thought. Yeah, I am I am deeply concerned about this. And as you know, you know, to write a book, it's a long slog. The publishing process takes a long time. So I finished this book in July of last year, July 2019. Oh, we wow. edited it in the fall. I haven't really touched the book since about Thanksgiving. So the fact that these ideas, the fact that states' rights, which you know, I'm such a huge proponent, as I know you are, about states' rights, the idea that the system was set up so that the individual states could tinker with ideas and taxation and their own individual laws and figure out how their economies work and how much money they want to put into education, all of these things, what a brilliant freaking experiment that our founders gave us, right? The idea of federalism, how absolutely brilliant. Now, I've been to libertarian conferences with you, and you can sit at a libertarian conference with 100 people or 500 people and debate states' rights and all of the ideas about license, driver's licenses and everything else. That stuff doesn't really get talked about in the mainstream, except suddenly in the last month and a half, people are talking about states' rights. There is a, a debate between Andrew Cuomo and Donald Trump as as to what the federal government and the state government should do. That's good. And, and the irony, of course, here is that the same people who have spent the last four years trying to undo an election, who claim that Donald Trump is Hitler and his supporters are racist, they're the same people who seem to want to give him the authority to do whatever he wants. It's like, this is why you have to be wary of power. You don't want the guy that you hate to have all of the power, and that's the exchange. So when it's your guy who you like, Guess what? He can't do everything you want because that's the safe way to do it. And when it's the guy that you hate, well, congratulations, you just got your golden ticket because he also can't do it. But the fact that people are suddenly talking about states' rights, the fact that, you know, I've tweeted out, I think you responded to one of them, uh, that, you know, I live here in California, so I have a governor and a, and a mayor and most of the state legislators who I, I don't share a worldview that's similar to them. And for the first time in my seven years in living in California, I'm thinking about moving. And it's like Texas and Florida are looking pretty good right now. And, and I gotta tell you, that sucks to even say that. I love it here. I love the weather. I, I've thrived here. My business is doing well. I, I've accomplished my dreams here or I'm, I'm on the way with my dreams. Um, but I'm really thinking about living in Texas right now because you, it's up to you. It's uh, That's consistent with everything I preach. It's up to you to find the place that you wanna live that's congruent with your ideas. And I think a lot of people are rethinking a lot of stuff right now. Well, I'm probably unsavable because my studio is is literally three blocks from the Capitol. So yeah. it's, it's sort of with, well, <laughs> well within the tractor beam of the Death Star. And and I, I think Washington has me. I, I can't seem to get out. You, you'll either be the first guy to go down or the last guy with the podcast. So yeah. either way, either way, there's a footnote in something, you know? Yeah. So, so I, I purposefully didn't look at it. I know you've done like 10,000 interviews in the last, how long, how many days has this book been out at this point? Uh, it's only been out six days, but I have quite literally been sitting in this chair for like 12 hours a day, almost nonstop talking to people. So yeah, it's been, it's been a lot, but I'm not complaining. I mean, yeah. this, this is the purpose of what you do, you know? This, this is, this is the slog. And I noticed uh, you posted, uh, you're, you're really your book's really kicking ass on Amazon because you're you're sandwiched literally between two 
uh, lonely wife porn novels, <laughs> which is exactly where you want to be. It's, it's hilarious, the things that you find out when you release a book. So one of the things that I didn't know is that the, the Kindle books are, if you look at the top 100, they're almost all romance novels. Now, I think yeah. I think that's also disproportionate right now because because of Corona, you know, you're seeing new habits develop. So like many of the top books right now, a very high disproportionate amount of hardcover books are children's books because there's a lot of parents at home that are reading to kids. So that's one yeah. thing. On the Kindle list, it's something like 90 out of the 100 are romance novels that are 99 cents. You know, my book's like 20 bucks or something, but we cracked the 100 and I'm right between, you know, this, you know, the the Hercules's lover's pecs and uh, some other man dripping with sweat with a woman hanging off his, you know, very flowy hair. So, you know, it, it's all it's all working, yeah. Well, my next book is definitely gonna have one of those covers. If, if that sells, <laughs> you know, whatever it takes. If but I had so, only known, if I had yeah. only known. So so how how is it going? Obviously you're selling a lot of books. Uh, do, you, do you have any data so far? Um, so I'm gonna get the, the updated stuff tonight, but we know we're crushing it. I mean, I'm at the top of every politi relevant political category. Uh, we were number two in nonfiction for the first couple of days. I, I think maybe we're three or four at the moment. I'm having trouble getting past Joanna Gaines. You know Joanna Gaines from, no. uh, from HGTV, Chip and Joanna, they, they take old houses and they turn them into spectacular modern farmhouses. I like her, so it's okay. I'm I'm having trouble beating her. Also, a lot of people are doing projects around the house right now, so I'll I'll grant Joanna that one. Um, but but joking aside, I, I'm thrilled that the ideas that I put forth here. You know, I didn't know Corona was coming, uh, obviously. But the ideas that I put forth here, these are the time-tested. What I really believe are the right ideas. And yeah. you know, to suddenly see people in Michigan standing up to suddenly see even people in California standing up, to see it throughout the country, these little embers that are happening. And it's like, that's not to say, as I said before, that you just open up and everyone can do everything at once. You know, you, But it's like, okay, Newsom, you wanna shut down the beaches? Then you gotta explain to us why you're doing it. You gotta explain why it's not okay to say, all right, well, we can only have X amount of people on the beach and we're gonna delineate certain areas for different groups, but it, but they don't do any of that because that's not what they're interested in. What they're interested in is power. So I, did you happen to see the tweet by the, uh, I believe it's the deputy mayor here in Los Angeles. He went on the plane, uh, the helicopter ride over the beach and he, and he showed just empty beaches and his tweet, it almost sounded like he was excited about yeah. it. Like it was, it was as if it was a tourism uh, video. Like not like what a, what a damn shame we had to do this. There's a serious, pandemic and we had to do this against what anyone would want to do because it's 85 and sunny in SoCal and this is why you're all here. Instead it was like, yeah, look what we're doing. See what we can do, ha ha. And then you see the same thing in Venice Beach with the uh, the bulldozer that filled up that kid's skate park, which is an iconic all over the world. That's not just a Californian iconic place. I mean, that's a worldwide um, monument to rebelling and they filled it up with sand. And it's like, we just sit here. We just sit here and watch it happen. Yeah, and, and like one of the one of the things I said about the skate part ep episode was, was sort of, a, I'm always an economist and I'm always thinking about trade-offs and costs and benefits. And, and I was thinking to myself, all of these drones and helicopters and bulldozers filling in skate parks to prevent people from doing things that frankly, are perfectly safe to, if you're keeping socially distant and you're outside, it's surely more healthy for you than being locked up in your homes. And I'm like, 
these are these are cities and states that are utterly bankrupt. They don't have a penny to their name. They don't yeah. have enough resources to, to finance public health. And yet they're doing all of this stuff and it just seems like a power trip. Well, not only does it seem like a power trip, but as I'm saying, it's like they don't do it. They just do it when they do it. And then they think by, by their own doing it that that in and of itself makes it right. So it's like if there was a problem at the skate park, let's, let's pretend. I, I don't know exactly what the facts are, but let's go on the assumption that there were maybe too many kids at the skate park for, for two weeks before all this. Well, did they send cops there to stop people? Did they post notes? Did they maybe put a yellow tape around the whole thing and say, we're temporarily closing this? I don't know that they did any of those things. And if they did, why didn't they pu publicize it? So we would, so that that, it's like, you don't have to go to the extreme measure immediately, but that seems to be what they do. So instead of saying, okay, we're closing the beaches, you could say, you can come to the beach, but you can only be in groups of four and, you know, you have to have X amount of space in between you and we're not opening up the public restrooms or, or whatever it might be. But that is not the game they're in. And I think this is gonna be the hardest part for, for libertarian-minded people to really grasp because you, you are live and let live. I am live and let live. Uh, most of your viewers are live and let live. We don't have this, un, we don't have this hidden desire to control people. And what that, the price you pay with that is that it's a little bit messy, right? We're not sitting here saying we have all the answers. We're not sitting here saying, oh, we know the exact policy prescription of what public places should be open right now and at what capacity. That's, that's sort of where the, the interesting part of life and politics comes in, where you have to debate some of that stuff to make mature policy. These guys, and this is so consistent with what progressives have done with absolutely everything. They don't deal with anything in a mature way. They stake out a position and by divine right, it is, it is their position and it is correct. So instead of doing any of the nuanced stuff that I just laid out, Newsom doesn't feel he has to do it because that's, because that's what their policies are. Their po free everything for everybody, $15 minimum wage, even though I've never run a, a business, you know, free this, free that. None of it makes any sense, but if you, if you just keep saying it and people keep following you, then why not keep saying it? You know, both you and I would love to rehabilitate the word liberalism, and, and you now have to qualify it, and, and usually I do as well, classical liberalism, libertarianism, and, and all of these things are, are sort of difficult words because they have so many different meanings for so many people. But when we talk about liberalism, and I would apply my philosophy of liberalism to our current situation, um, one of the principles of liberalism is humility. We don't know what we don't know, and we certainly don't know what the future brings. We're living in real time, moving forward this 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 process, and and the marketplace, the mutual support structure that we all depend on to get through an uncertain future is is based on this humility that we don't know, versus sort of this authoritarian progressivism that you talk about throughout your book, which is I know everything. It's based on science. And I'm going to defer to the World Health Organization because those are the best scientists and they couldn't possibly have any self-interest. They couldn't possibly have any doubt. And we're going to enforce that with all of the brutal power of the state. And to me, that's the, the difference here. It's not really conservative versus uh, yep. the way that words liberalism is used. It's, it's about whether or not you actually are arrogant enough to think that you can fix everything. I, I truly couldn't have said it any better. That is it. 
they give you bumper sticker things that sort of make sense, even though they've never accomplished anything. The Bernie $15 minimum wage or the, the progressive $15 minimum wage idea is such a perfect example of this. Bernie has never run a small business. I have run a small business. I'm running one right now. We are in no debt. We're actually pretty highly profitable. We, I hired new people in the midst of coronavirus. I'm very proud of what I've built here. The government has no right to tell me how much I should pay my employees. I happen to pay them quite well because I want them to work hard for me, and they do. But what the progressives do is they come in with no expertise in anything. They say $15 minimum wage, even though Bernie's never run a business. And then what happens a week later? Rashida Tlaib comes in and says, no, no, $20 minimum wage. And then it's like, well, I guess she's right because he just made up a number, so now she made up a more moral number. She wants poorer people to have more money. She's more moral. And that's why they're always in a race to outgovernment themselves. Because on the right, what you're describing as, as classical liberalism, as libertarianism, as, as some version of, you know, like the more freedom end of conservatism, let's say, the, the core belief is individual rights. That's it. The, that's it, basically, you know, with light touch of government. That's it. And then what, you know, we've, we've discussed this before, but we could whittle down where there might be, I would say, some places where me as a classical liberal might want a little more government than you as a libertarian. I don't even think it's worth us you know, debating anymore at this point, because it's like the core of what we believe is the same. And that's why what I'm seeing on the center right now is so inspiring to me. It's like all of these people are basically saying, hey, I believe in individual rights and I don't want the government to do everything. The only unifying principle of the left is government. That's not a unifying principle, that's just a power grab. And, and then because they view government as good, you constantly, it doesn't matter if you can pay for it. That's irrelevant. It doesn't matter if it financially makes sense or if it makes sense business-wise or any other way. None of those things matter. What was the line that AOC said? It doesn't matter if you're factually right as long as you're morally correct, something, right. something to that yeah. effect. And yeah. that, that is so deeply, da it's dangerous at a human level, but I mean, it's, it's seriously dangerous for our, our leaders, our political leaders to believe that sort of thing. Well, it's funny, and you, and you talk about this in the book. One of your conversion experiences was watching Ben Affleck uh, throw a moral hissy fit on Bill Maher and the ensuing process of Bill Maher. The first time that the progressive left tried to cancel one of their own, um, tell that story because I think it I think it's playing out again today. Yeah, so you saw I dedicated the book to Ben Affleck. Now, I've never met Ben Affleck, and I suspect I may never meet Ben Affleck. Um, I don't I, think he's a particularly good Batman or anything else, uh, but I have no problem with Ben Affleck you know, as a human being. But, but what happened that night on Real Time, this is about five years ago, uh, was Sam Harris was on, Sam Harris, the neuroscientist, who mostly writes about religion from, a, from an atheist perspective. He was on to promote his book, which I have right there. It's called Waking Up, A Guide to Spirituality Without Religion. And what they were discussing was the idea that you have to be able to separate ideas from people, meaning that a religious text is a set of ideas and you can judge that and critique that, but you wouldn't wanna be bigoted towards all the people that maybe subscribe to some of those ideas. In other words, you could critique the Old Testament, no one would say that you hate all Jews. You could critique the New Testament, no one would say that you hate all Christians. But in this case, they were more so talking about Islam, radical Islam particularly. And when, at, when Sam made the point that we have to be able to criticize the ideas in the Quran, just like you could criticize any other set of ideas, but you don't want to be bigoted towards Muslims as people. Everyone knows this is true. And no one with, a, with any sort of flickering notion of humanity would know that you wouldn't want to be bigoted towards people based on, on an immutable characteristic. 
th that's a little confusing here because religion actually is mutable because you could deconvert or whatever. Um, the point is that when, when Sam and Bill Maher laid out this concept, Maher did all of the things that we've come to know progressives do. He got red in the face, huffy puffy, sweating, screaming at them. And the line that caught fire was he said that they were gross and racist. And Bill Maher had been the standard bearer in America on the left for the last 30 years. There is no more public lefty who has fought everything, including Donald Trump, than Bill Maher, right? And right. suddenly what I watched happen was, I didn't even know who Sam Harris was at the time, but suddenly because Affleck, an A-list movie star, overly emoted rather than making an argument, suddenly Buzzfeed, Vox, the usual suspects, were HuffPo, were all calling Bill Maher racist and Sam Harris racist. And when I saw that catch fire, it, it was one of the three moments that I describe in the book as, as like those click moments for me, where it was like, I had been thinking this for a while. I was still on the Young Turks at the time. And I had been thinking, it doesn't make sense that everyone we disagree with is a racist and a bigot and a homophobe and the worst people and they're all sellouts and grifters and blah, blah, and we're so morally right. It's just, the equation is just too easy. And, and when I saw that moment, and, I, and this is why I, I put Ben Affleck in the, in the uh, acknowledgement um, or the, in the beginning, it's because watching an A-list star just overly scream about something that he doesn't know what he's saying and yet seeing it proliferate throughout society while the good, decent people who tried to do what you're talking about explain a complex issue honestly while they got destroyed by the mob. And that really is in many ways what led me to writing this book because we see this all the time now. And by the way, we're seeing it literally right now where you know the blue check Twitterati, every time someone protests are saying that they're racist and they're bigots and they're anti-government far-right lunatics and the rest of it. And it's just simply not true. They're people who wanna go about living their lives. It's funny, you know, AOC, um, when she talks about being morally right instead of factually correct, or, or Ben Affleck just emoting all over the place. Um, Bill Maher is like one of the guys that's actually been willing to call that out. And and I, when I back in my Tea Party days, and I'm sure your colleagues at the Young Turks were spending all sorts of time uh, peeing on our legs at the time, but uh, I would always go on Bill Maher because even though we didn't agree on much, he would always give me a chance to sort of represent my opinion, and he's, he got in a lot of hot water for, for actually suggesting that, that, that radical Islam was potentially dangerous. And uh, today I think he's in a lot of hot water because, because he just did this great rant against what he calls fear porn, yeah. which, is, which is this same sort of mindset that we're just emoting, you know, everybody's going to die, and if you're not wearing a mask on a subway, you're, you're worse than, I'm sure they've said worse than Hitler, but you're a monster because you're not following the rules, even though the World Health Organization had a different set of rules just a couple of weeks ago. They were so telling I, us I, not to wear are. masks. Right, yeah. they were telling us not to wear masks a couple of weeks ago. And then YouTube will say, if you say anything against the WHO, we're gonna remove their videos. It's all bananas. To that point though, with Mar, you know, it's interesting because I mentioned how the they've executed order 66 on the good liberals. I would say he's basically, maybe me, but I don't even know that I can fully include myself in this group anymore, he might be the last liberal standing and I'm not sure how much longer he's gonna be standing. And I mean that because who likes Bill Maher right now? It's conservatives and libertarians because yeah. of exactly what you just said. You disagree on the issues, you know, some of the specific policies or prescriptions, 
But you know that Bill Maher stands for free speech. You know that Bill Maher stands for the basic fundamental principles of the United States. Now, is, big, is Bill Maher way too big government for you? Yeah, is he way too big government for me? Yeah, does he seemingly believe in a lot of policies that we don't think work? Yeah, So, but that's different than his core belief as, as a good liberal. But I would say that there's almost no other liberal left, and I haven't said this publicly yet, but I was supposed to be on the show on May 29th. We just got canceled yesterday because I guess they're not doing as many panels now. They're gonna do all the one-on-ones, and I don't know if he didn't think I was worthy of a one-on-one, or maybe it didn't even get to him. I don't wanna blame him specifically, but I would love to have that conversation with him because I think what, what I would say my difference with him at this point is, is that he's a good liberal who has sort of been caught in Hollywood nonsense. He wants to be liked by the cool crew, and you know he could never be, you know, and it's also for him, it's about religion also. And he just has this mass aversion to the right because of religion. But I've also seen a huge secular movement starting to rise on the right. You know, Heather McDonald, who I think is one of the great conservative thinkers we have, she's a completely atheist, secular conservative. That's an interesting spot for a conservative to be. But I, so I think what Mar, what's happened to Mar is he's watched the left be decimated, the left's trying to take him out, but I think because of the religion thing, he just can't quite embrace, say, the more libertarian side. What does the guy wanna do? He wants to smoke pot, he wants to hang out at the Playboy Mansion when he can, and the rest of it. Like, he's a libertarian, but I get it. I, this, is a, this is a wacky town, L.A. Well, but I would love to discuss that all with him. I don't mean any of that to, to right. besmirch him or, or even talk behind his back. Like, I, I genuinely think it would be an interesting conversation. That's, and I've, I've thought about that specifically with him, and, and I hope you do get on because I think that would be a, a, a good conversation. But in this world of clickbait and fear porn and, and radical tribalism, particularly on social media, and you talk about this all the time, and you know the, the Rubin Report and the Intellectual Dark Web was really a, sort of that counter-revolution. Um, is it safe for someone like Bill Maher to have a real conversation? Because... It, it, it potentially undermines his existing business model, and he's gonna have to be willing to believe that there is there is an audience for open and honest and sometimes really loud disagreements where we could actually argue about ideas again and, and, and still uh, respect each other afterwards. So it's a great question, because what you're really asking there is, as we watch television crumble in its final stages, what happens as we've watched the rise of the internet and the last stage of old school television? And, and even HBO, for as advanced as HBO was, you know, their whole catchphrase for all those years was, it's not TV, it's HBO. But at the end of the day, it's just TV. So when you watch Mar now, and he's out of the studio and he's in his backyard and there is no live audience there and they put in a laugh track and all of those stuff, it's starting to feel very irrelevant. So I don't know that, that Bill at this stage in his life with the amount of money he has and everything else. Like if I was Bill and it was, you know, I saw the end of television nigh, it's like, ah, would I really be like, okay, let me let me become a podcaster now. It's, it's not that there's a shortage of podcasts of people talking about what they think. If I was Bill Maher, I'd probably be pulling a, who is John Galt and just disappear. Yeah. Um, I, I suspect that he won't fully do that, but I think we are, seeing a transition right now. It's like, look, I'm in my house right now. This is my garage. I have a, I have a broadcast quality TV studio. So I was a little ahead of the game on the, on the home studio thing. But what I have here is way better than watching Chris Cuomo cr climb out of his basement in a WWE sketch. 
which is all it is. I mean, CNN is just running SNL skits all day. Um, but you know, we're watching mainstream people broadcast out of their kitchens now. And I wonder at the end of this, it's like if CNN's looking at the numbers and they're going, holy cow, when we were doing a, you know, Anderson Cooper show five nights a week, we look at the numbers. This thing costs us $3 million a night with all the crew and the unions and the lights and the cameras and da, 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 da. Now he does it off a freaking webcam or like a thousand dollar setup. And yeah, it's not as flashy and everything else, but like we, we would be, 50 times more profitable the other way. I wonder if any of that stuff is gonna come back because I guarantee you, I don't know what the exact numbers are, but I would bet that one year of my show, one year of my show costs less than one night of Anderson Cooper's show. And I probably have more, not probably, I definitely have more viewers and, and listeners. So I think the, the entire game is about to be flipped here. And by the way, that's great opportunity for, for free market people, for people that like capitalism and like competition and the rest of it. Yeah. I mean, there are there are examples of of sort of old school uh, cartels, government or otherwise, and I'm I'm never quite sure where the media falls in that government versus private <laughs> thing anymore. But yeah, one of the one of the upsides is that there's 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 all this radical disruption, and and I'm not sure why the media cartel still existed before this crisis, but maybe it's an opportunity. Well, I think the reason it existed is that. Things don't die quickly. You know, institutions, we think that, oh, well, an institution has sort of served its purpose. It kind of gets out of the way. But that's not really how it is. What I would liken this to is sort of like, uh, you know, if you think back to the tar pits, like dinosaurs falling in tar pits, like that's CNN. That, that's the New York Times. They're stuck in the tar pits now. They've grown too big. They became ideological instead of on a quest for truth. Everyone can see it. The Internet exposed all of it. And now really it's like, well, now some, some sort of smaller, nimble, more evolved dinosaurs are jumping on their backs to get to the other side of the tar pit and they're just pushing them down on the way. And, uh, and I would guess that you probably roughly agree with me on this. I wish they were better. I, I'm not, you know, when I attack CNN, it's like, man, every time before I hit tweet, I'm like, I really wish I didn't have to do this again. I wish the New York Times didn't lie again, but it's like, I'm not a journalist. I don't even consider myself a journalist, you know? But yeah. but many of us have become journalists in an age where journalists, you know, with air quotes, have have ruined journalism. I used to I used to curate a very broad uh, perspective of of news sources. Um, I, and that's what I primarily use Twitter for was to 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 get all of the perspectives. But I just can't watch CNN anymore. And I can't watch uh, and you know there's there's right versions of CNN too, and I don't really watch those anymore because what what I wanted news for was was opinions, but also just facts and and reporting, and I can get that um, through this very dispersed uh, community of of bloggers and podcasters and and guys like you and Jordan Peterson, intellectual dark web, um, our our friend and who's who's the the rock star in uh, in your neck of the woods. Why am I blanking? Oh, Rogan, Rogan. Rogan, Joe Rogan. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I'd rather watch Joe Rogan. And, yeah, but look, and, the, the question related to all that is how long are they gonna let us use the pipes? I mean, that's right. a whole other thing that we've discussed previously, but you know, if big tech is really somehow in bed with government, which it seems like it is, I mean, we know that there are some ties there, but then as big business also gets in, I mean, this is also the strange place for the liberty people to try to think, we have to think this thing through. It's like, they could shut us all down right now. You know what I mean? Like Viacom or something could put enough pressure on YouTube or you know some version of that 
that they could be like, we just don't want all these podcasters out there. I, I mean, I've been predicting this for a while, but I, I'm guessing in two years, YouTube has gotten rid of almost everybody. It will only be verified sources. They're, they're yeah. telling us that is the future of this thing. Anyone yeah. with an independent voice, a guy like Tim Pool, he is not gonna be allowed on YouTube. They're, they're not gonna tolerate that. And by the way, that's why I created locals.com because I do believe in competition and, and what we're doing is building digital homes for creators. I'm not trying to build a platform. I'm building digital homes. If you, if you are a creator of any kind, whatever you freaking do, as long as it's not breaking the laws of the United States, we will build you a home that is yours, that is secure. Uh, because if you think that you know, renting space from YouTube is, is a safe way to go about doing this, well, the day that they pull the plug, you're gonna go, man, I, I screwed that one up. Well, you, you've been, you've been uh, warning us that this was gonna happen for years, and, and I think my response to you was the typical libertarian response that, well, there's a difference between what a private business does and what a government does, but to this point where I can't tell them apart, obviously, a lot of these companies had their roots in in government financing, mm -hmm. which which is one problem. But and you mentioned this earlier, but I, I got to read this because it's it's quite shocking. Um, I think everybody's seen right now that YouTube decided to pull down that video of those two doctors from Orange County, mm -hmm. uh, who were and and there was nothing fringy about those guys. They they were they were doctors on the ground and they were making observations. Um, but but the uh, CEO of of uh, YouTube said that they would be removing information that is problematic. And I love that word, problematic. problematic. It's the worst it's, word we have going right now. It's not, it's not true or false. Anything that is medically unsubstantiated, anything that would go against the World Health Organization recommendations would be a violation of our policy. So um, what is that standard? It's whatever the WHO says, and whatever the WHO says is, by the way, different than what they said yesterday. And oh, by the way, it's a fundamentally political organization. And it, this whole thing is, is so fundamentally anti-science because real scientists understand that scientific discovery and figuring stuff out is a process where different people with different opinions argue. I mean, that's the point. That's the real point. YouTube has become anti-science in the name of science. They're pretending they're the ones for science while they're also saying, but dissent about our science must be shut down. And as we said earlier, they were literally, I mean, there are tweets from the WHO six weeks ago, you don't need to wear masks. So should the WHO now be kicked off Twitter because they got something wrong? I mean, none of this makes any sense. And I think in many ways, you know, at the height of the intellectual dark web peak, when, when there was this thing that was just exploding and it had so much of course to do with Jordan Peterson specifically, I think what we were doing as a group was we were just offering some counter sense making. It's not that we had all the answers and it's not that we agreed on everything. You know, I always use the example of, of Ben Shapiro and Sam Harris. These guys literally disagree on everything. I mean, from the nature of the universe, from, from truly what the most existential questions are to everything else, abortion, taxes, the whole damn thing. They disagree on everything. And yet I've been to dinners with them and they are perfectly cordial and everything else. And, and the reason for that is they both have a desire to bring sense into the world. And I, what I really fear right now is that we don't have sense makers. We, we've got a couple people trying. Um, I wouldn't even say a couple people. I think there are plenty of people trying, but I think that the, the order, the establishment, the, who, who would you turn to on CNN to make sense of the world? 
Who would you turn to uh, at the New York Times now to make sense of the world? You you can't do it. Um, and you know, just quickly on the on the cable news thing, you know, all of my hits right now this week when I'm doing all this press, I'm on every single Fox show. I go on every Fox show. I don't do pre-interviews. They let me say whatever I want. They know I make a pro-choice argument in this book. That is like the biggest no-no for conservatives. There are several other things in there uh, that conservatives aren't thrilled about. Not every conservative is thrilled about gay marriage and, and a series of other things. But Fox lets me do whatever I want. You know how many invites I got from CNN and MSNBC? I bet you can count them without Zero. even putting up your hand. Zero. Now, now, who is the tolerant side? Who is the tolerant side? I could go on MSNBC and make an argument for pro-choice. I can make an argument. I, I still believe that the state has some role in education. I'm sort of I'm starting to waver on that one. But I mean, I can make a that, against that, the that is, that is problematic, by the way. All right. So right, there's a good use of the word problematic. And I really am starting to waver on that one. I mean, I've always believed in choice and I believe in charter schools and the rest of it. Um, but I think that there can be a role for it. I, I am I came from you know good public schools. I think there can be a role for it. Uh, but I would love to have that conversation with you. We'll, we'll do that when you come on my show. Why don't we, we'll unpack that one a little bit okay, more. Okay, cool. Um, but uh, I think it's like, I could make a bunch of what are thought of as standard lefty arguments, but they don't want to hear it because for them, it's check off 10 out of 10 or you're out. And what happens on the right is when Brett Weinstein, lefty, 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 progressive at the most progressive college in America, when he gets attacked, what happened? Who put him on? Tucker Carlson, not Anderson Cooper. And that tells you that something's happening on the right that is that is basically good. It's not perfect, but it's basically good. So let's get back, let's get back to the book. I, I, I thought one of the most uh, compelling chapters was, and you had told me this story last time we were hanging out, but you tell the story of, of how the stress of essentially divorcing from, from your old uh, friend support structure at Young Turks uh, really puts you through a health scare and, and you sort of come clean with all that stuff. Um, tell that, but tell people, like, because we, we all deal with this, right? And and you and I are professionals and and a lot of people shoot at us and it's it's not really a big deal. We figured out how to kind of manage that. But, you know, what if, what if your uncle won't talk to you anymore? How do you, how do you get past that stress? Yeah, I'm glad you're asking because in many ways that that's the core of this thing. The, the core of this book is I know what will happen to you when you come out, so to speak. When you just say, I think differently than other people, or when you say, I don't purely believe in these 10 things you want me to believe, this is what will happen to you. You know, it's funny, I, I forgot that when we were, uh, I think we were at a YAL conference that yeah. night, um, and there was a bunch of us sitting around a table, and we were doing our usual, what, what do libertarians do? We were debating the whole damn thing, and I'm pretty sure driver's licenses did come up, and we were debating everything, and something came up um, about stress related to all of this, and I had never shown people that picture before, but I think I, you probably remember, I took a, my phone out and I showed this picture and I was missing huge, huge chunks of hair all over my head. And for about a year and a half on the show, I was literally spraying on hair. I was on this, this horrific experimental medication that caused me to be bloated and I had huge bags under my eyes. And, and literally, I kid you not, it's, it's a freaking miracle, but every inch of my body except my face was covered in sores and, and itchy, and I couldn't be around heat, which is very difficult, obviously, in, in Los Angeles. Um, and what so what I had developed was alopecia areata, which is the only thing they can chalk it up to is stress, that your, your hair follicles, in essence, your white blood cells start attacking your hair follicles. They've, they can't find any other reason other than stress, 
related to this. You may remember an episode of The Simpsons very early on when Marge uh, was losing all of her hair because things were so crazy at home. Uh, so why did this happen? Well, it happened because at the beginning of all of this, when I still f was a lefty, I mean, I was still saying, hey guys, I'm a lefty, I'm one of you guys, like, let's not all go crazy here. Well, I was getting nice messages from people on the right, but the shocking part was the un the unending torrent of hate that was coming, you know, all of, of course, the Twitter stuff and all that, but then suddenly, you know, colleagues of mine, friends of mine, people that were invited to my wedding, suddenly saying the worst things about me publicly and privately, calling me the worst things, and no matter how many times you say, but I'm, but I'm not racist, I don't want anyone to be judged by the color of their skin, or I, I didn't say that, and that's, what they do is they try to find, they create some version of you that's not the real you, but it fits their idea perfectly. And, and I just got crushed by that. And it was ironic because, you know, my career was going like this, but you know, my life was going like this. And it is absolutely true what I wrote in that book. I woke up one morning and this is just as the show was exploding. I was ready to quit. I mean, I was right there. And I thought, I can't do this. I can't, I can't look at myself anymore. I can't, you know, I just can't do it. And something just kind of kept me going. And then fortunately, uh, you know, I've learned how to deal with the stress better. And I take biotin, which is a natural substance that you can take for, for hair and it strengthens your nails too. So my nails are really, I got working Wolverine over here. Um, but I included it not for, it wasn't a fun part to write. I did not enjoy writing that part of the book. It was probably the hardest part to write. But I didn't include it for sympathy or for virtue signaling. I included it because I know that everyone will go through their version of this. There, there's another person who I won't mention by name, who's a very public person that we both know, who when they sort of came out of the closet too, the political closet, also went through a massive health thing as well, yeah. partly related to the stresses. So this is not, you know, it's not alien to me. And, yeah. and other people will go through it. And, and my point in writing it really was, you, if you survive, which you will, not only whatever the health things might be, but if you survive the slings and arrows, if you survive the attacks and everything else, you will be better on the other side because it's hard for people to realize that, oh, well, my friends are gonna turn on me, but they're my friends. But if you are someone who can't share your feelings with your friends, then actually you're not friends, but it's really hard to accept that. And then the other hard part is, if you've spent so much time calling all of these people bigots and racists and the rest of it, and then suddenly, they're, they're like this, right? They're, they're right. welcoming you. And then you have, to, you have to be able to have a little bit of a mea culpa. You have to be like, wow, you guys aren't what I said. And, and I know that to be true now. I know that to be true. Why, why do I have dinner? Well, before lockout, the last guest that I had at my house was Dennis Prager and his wife. Dennis Prager, who they will tell you is a homophobe. And we had him, him and his wife over for dinner, just the four of us. It's like, it's not true, it's not true. You know, I've been through, uh, you know, I'm, I'm a libertarian that lives three blocks from the Capitol. So you can imagine I'm sort of a, a strange animal living in a, in a wildly strange land. And, and all these years, I've been put in situations at various jobs and various projects where you just have to say no on something that's really important if you want to keep yourself whole. And then, and then the attacks come. And then, the, you know, they try to destroy your career. They try to do all the things that they do in Washington, D.C. And and I could really relate with that chapter because at some point you just have to let it wash off and you have to be comfortable with who you are and what you believe in 
and 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 realize that there's there's a lot of people out there with that same sort of sense of uh, personal integrity. If I don't, I'm not sure exactly what to call it, but an openness to this stuff. And and to me, that's that's why I sort of compare your book a little bit to Jordan Peterson's because it's more about how to how to how to free yourself from this this cage that somebody's put us in. Yeah, well, first off, I, I really appreciate the comparison. I, I, you know, it's not, uh, well, first off, that wasn't intentional, but I, I do, a few people have said something like that, that this is sort of the more digestible version or the one that you can read in a couple days and get those broad ideas. And of course, you know, as I, chapter nine, it's about finding a mentor. And I, I talk about my year and a half with Jordan. And it wasn't like we sat down and he was like, I'm the Jedi Knight, you're the Padawan learner. It, it was osmosis. I, I spent a year and a half with this guy watching him through his words and ideas fix the world. Fix, I mean, the thousands of people that I met, you know, truly met, I mean, talked to, who had stopped doing drugs, who were addicted to porn, who had, you know, horrible marriages, were in abusive relationships, every everything that you could think of, the entire gamut of, of bad habits that any of us have or bad relationships, that through his words in 12 Rules for Life, he had helped people put to bed or at least gotten them on the right path. And, and you know, I think the confusion here is, you know, Jordan's going through a bit of a rough time right now. And I think partly, you know, his haters are like, ah, see, he wasn't perfect. He wasn't perfect. And yet he was telling people to fix their lives. And it's like, he never purported to be. He actually was quite open about the fact that he was taking a, a small amount of, uh, of an anti-anxiety drug. And in the midst of the tour, try to imagine being this guy. You're, you're a mild-mannered psychology professor and clinical psychologist in, in Canada. Next thing you know, you are the leading intellectual in the entire world. The fame, the hit pieces, the adulation, the hatred, all of that stuff. I was with him, I think we were in Iowa, when we were having lunch and he got the call that his wife had what they thought at the time was terminal cancer. He lived through all of that stuff. Fortunately, she's okay now, and, and he will be okay too. Um, but this idea that, you know, you have to be able to separate the art from the artist. He never said he was perfect, but the amount of people that he helped straighten out through that book, and that's his, like, those, those ideas in 12 Rules, those were a lifetime's worth of, of psychological and historical knowledge that he handed to people. And I would always say to Jordan, when, when a show was particularly good, we did about 120 shows, when he would get off stage, if I thought he just crushed it, I would always say to him, Jordan, that show felt thick. And what I meant by that, it was like, if you were listening, it was like you had to like walk through it and it was hard, it was like walking through mud because it's not the funnest thing in the world, right? To really get your stuff in order, but it was thick. And if you got to the other side, you would feel accomplished as opposed to a thin show, which would just be like walking through paper. It's just like, you just go right through and there's nothing there. And I think 12 Rules for Life is thick and it's dense and it's worthwhile and all of those things. And by the way, that's why it sold, I think, 7 million copies, something like that. And what I tried to do was take some of the ideas through that, take my story and, and explain to people, if this, gets you, if this gets you going on your adventure, that's, that's just great. Well, it's a it's a delightful read because specifically because it's not too heavy and you have a way of, of translating some really big ideas into into easy to digest stuff. And you're also telling a personal story. And these these to me are the things that that make a good book. Anyone can write a intellectual dissertation or just a, a screed. Um, but but I really enjoyed it. And and 
I'm going to put a little bit of this responsibility on you. You got me fired up. I'm in the middle of this. <laughs> I'm glad I'm, to hear it, man. I'm in the middle of this. Uh, this I, I think that what the government is doing to civil society right now is is the most tragic thing I've seen in my lifetime. So I'm I'm sort of starting to relive my Tea Party days. I I really aspired to to have transpartisan conversations and thoughtful dialogue with the other side. But but right now I'm just raging against the machine. And I'm afraid that I might piss somebody off somewhere. I don't know. Well, first off, I have no doubt you'll piss somebody off. And that, as I lay out in the book, is not necessarily a problem. I know you know that. But I think for, for the liberty-minded people right now, for what we've all spent you know, however many years debating and discussing at the ideal level, it seems to me, and I think this is what you're saying, that the, the rubber is meeting the road right now. Like, it's happening. The stuff that we fear could happen is happening. I, I live in a state that is run by authoritarians. Um, if I was to go to the beach today, I would either be fined or arrested or reprimanded or something like that, even if I was standing nowhere within 200 yards of another human being. This is the worst sort of authoritarian stuff ever. And, and just to be clear one more time, because I know someone's gonna clip this, that is not to diminish the realities of the coronavirus, but we have to have mature conversations about how to open as opposed to, oh, we're just closed or we're open. I mean, you know, it was a month ago where they said in, in California, May 15th. Well, as we do this today, May the 4th, it's like, is there any chance in high hell we're opening in nine days? Of course not. They didn't close the beaches until two days ago. And are they gonna, on May 15th, suddenly explain to us in, in true terms, well, how can we go about doing this? I, I suspect not. So, you know, this is where the founders were good. They said, hey, states, do what you want. And guess what? You, citizen, you don't like it there, you go somewhere else. And I think that's the next thing we're gonna start seeing. We're gonna see massive population shifts. And I know that people in red states are kind of freaking out because whenever Californians leave, they're good for a little while and then they import all their stupid ideas that they were fleeing in the first place. So I know Texans and Floridians, they're all kind of like, all right, it'll, you know, it'll be nice for a little while, but let's not wreck the place. Um, but fortunately, at least in Florida, the no state income tax is actually in their constitution. It would be pretty hard to get rid of. Um, but I do think shifting populations are going to be the next version of this. Yeah, I, I am starting to see people wake up. And I've, I've watched for too long where people just sort of blindly accept that, that locking down a, a full economies is somehow going to come without a cost. Uh, by the way, the state of Oregon has extended their lockdown right past Independence Day, conveniently or ironically or something. And, and I, you know, my view is, is like yours. I, I, think, I think we should take this very seriously. I think that this is a real threat to human life, but we don't know enough. So the, the very idea that we would sort of settle on one strategy without considering the costs and benefits of all these other things that we're doing is, is kind of crazy to me, but. Yeah, uh, but but Matt, you know, I know you're a sci-fi guy too, so let's play this out in like a dystopian future kind of thing. Let's say we found out tomorrow for fact, 100% fact, coronavirus is going to kill half the population. So I'm picking like a crazy number right now, but let's, let's just say we found out like the worst possible thing. It's going to wipe out half the life on the planet. Would that be reason for the rest, for all of us to stay in our houses forever? And my answer, my personal answer to that would be no, that you'd still, it would still be up to you as an individual 
to decide how you wanna live, how your family wants to live and everything else. Now, not only are we not at 50%, we're not at 40%, we're not at 20%, 30 30%, 10%, 5%. Our, we did flatten the curve. Now that isn't to say we could have some spikes as we open up and the rest of it. But the point is, you know, if we all believe the things that we say and, and we don't wanna trade security for liberty and all of those things, it's like, we don't want, sorry, we don't wanna trade liberty for security. Um, it's like, this is it. So what are we gonna do? What are we gonna do? Are we just gonna podcast about it or are we gonna take some action? And uh, I, I assure you if, if next week this beach thing's still happening, I'm going to the beach. This week, I, I actually just couldn't even leave my house because I was so shot from a week of press. I was like, I'm gonna sit in my backyard and do nothing. But I'll, I'll try to go to the beach next week and see what happens. Well, I'm, I'm a radical. I still think that uh, we citizens have a right to peaceably petition our government for an airing of grievances, but uh, apparently that's not essential. So we'll, we'll see how that goes. <laughs> you are quite radical thinking you're allowed to speak up against the government. Jeez. Crazy, crazy pants. Yeah. So, so where do we get this book and how do we make sure that your book ends up number one on all of the appropriate lists? Yeah, so look, we're crushing it across the board, but if you wanna help me out actually, uh, well, first off, Amazon's probably the easiest place to get it because they are delivering, so you can just search Don't Burn This Book on Amazon or go to don'tburnthisbook.com if you wanna help out some smaller stores that are still delivering or Barnes & Noble or the rest of it. But one thing that, that is so in line with everything I write in the book is there is a freaking massive troll campaign to destroy my book right now. I mean, the Amazon reviews are being flooded, they're hitting Target, they're hitting every place that has any reviews, they're copying and pasting, they're coordinating. It's against all of the terms of service of, of all these sites, but they don't do anything, they don't do anything. So if you if you wanna help me out and you snag the book, uh, just throw a, throw a review on there, have it be honest. If you don't like it, that's fine too. I'm not asking people to, to lie and five star me for the hell of it. Um, but they, this is what it is. If you, all I laid out in this book, all that's in this thing, I think is some common sense stuff and you can agree with it or disagree with it. But in effect, by them trying to mob it, to silence it, what are they doing? It's the modern day burning. I mean, it's exactly the purpose of the book. So uh, that's how people could help out. And I look forward, I know we're gonna have you on in a couple of weeks and hopefully, well, hopefully we're not in the gulag. Are we yeah. allowed to Skype in the gulag? I don't know, I don't know. We'll have to find out about that because I don't know if they're letting people Skype from the gulags or if one of us is in the gulag, maybe I could Skype you or we'll have to figure out, our people will deal with that. Maybe there's Morse code that we can use. I don't know. <laughs> okay, thank you, sir. This has been fun. Thanks, Matt. Enjoyed it. Thanks for listening to Kibbe on Liberty. Be sure to subscribe and rate the podcast. Your ratings will help us reach even more people with our mostly honest conversations with mostly interesting people.